This conference will now be recorded. All right, good morning and welcome to our session on mediation, nuts, bolts, and ethics. This will qualify for the one hour of ethics that is necessary for mediators. And we're gonna cover a lot of other issues that up other than uh, ethics as well. So this is gonna be a terrific session. We do have three uh, terrific presenters today. Uh, Susan Bullfinch is a mediator, uh, trainer, coach, and facilitator. She's an adjunct professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law in the mediation clinic. She has presented with us in the past. Uh, Kristen Carmichael is uh, the training director at the Lodestar Center for Dispute Resolution at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Say that three times fast. Uh, and we are going to have uh, Professor Hinshaw explain what the Lodestar uh, Center for Dispute Resolution is uh, in, in a few minutes. And, our, um, and I believe this is Kristen's first time presenting for us. Uh, so thank you, Kristen. And then uh, Professor Art Hinshaw has presented for us every year. He, he's just a tremendous resource. He is a nationally recognized expert on mediation. Uh, throughout the United States. Um, he has received uh, CPR awards uh, for two of them and has, uh, including for his 2022 book, Discussions and Dispute Resolution. Uh, and so it's just a, a, a tremendous resource and we thank Professor Hinshaw tremendously. A reminder to everyone, please mute yourself unless you're actively speaking. You are welcome to turn cameras on or off. And if you're just on the phone, if you don't mute yourself and I hear noise from your phone, I will mute you and you won't be able to ask questions. And at this point, I will turn it over to the presenters. Well, okay, I'm Art Hinshaw. Great to see you, everybody, or at least to see your names. Um, and it's a pleasure to be presenting to uh, the group of mediators at the Justice Courts. Um, I've been doing work with the Justice Courts for 18 years now, doing mediations. Susan, you're about the same, is that right? Oh, wait. I'm going to have to learn to unmute myself. Yeah, I would say um, maybe a little bit less. I would say close to 15, 16 years now with Justice so Courts. We've been doing this a long time and have seen a lot of changes uh, over the years. And um, it's really good to have this opportunity for us to get together. And this is Kristen's first time uh, presenting uh, in this group. And we hired her at the Lodestar Center to be the director of our training programs. And so um, the question came, what is the Lodestar Center for Dispute Resolution at the College of Law? Um, it is the umbrella organization under which all of our uh, dispute resolution activities are housed. So what do we do? Obviously we teach classes at the law school. Um, I, we have adjunct professors who teach classes. Susan is one of them. We have others who teach negotiation. Um, and we have a master's program in uh, legal studies that's focused on conflict resolution. And so I came up with the uh, curriculum for that and we've got a bunch of adjunct professors who teach in that program. Additionally, we're the way that um, 
the dispute resolution program, for lack of a better word, really connects with the community. So Kristen is probably our most outward facing individual. She's been doing all kinds of programs this year. Last count, Kristen, I'm going to ask you, it was 20, how many programs did we do? Have we done? Um, this year total will be with our big main conferences and other events will be close to 30. So close to 30 events over the year. Um, and if you want to get included on uh, the things that we have going on, please uh, either email me or I know that Kristen's email is at the on the last slide. Um, email us and get on our mailing list. Now, I saw that Judge Williams said that he's getting bombarded by us. So apologies for that. But we are on social media. That's uh, when I was doing it, I didn't have enough time to do that kind of stuff. And so when Kristen came on, it's great to have her. Uh, and we have a new uh, assistant as well, Isis Gutierrez, who um, works on our social media. Um, other things that we do, we do grant projects. So we've got a project on um, community and police uh, relationships under what's called a Sentinel event review. We got a big grant to do that. And so we um, had a big um, thing with the Tempe Police Department um, last year. And we've had some conferences about this. We're working with the Sedona Police Department right now. And what we are doing is we are taking bad events um, from a policing standpoint and doing, bringing dispute resolution skills to work with them, not from a what happened standpoint, but from a system, systematic improvement standpoint. So what happened? What was wrong? How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Look at all the factors that contributed to it. Kind of reminds me of when I was a kid and watched Sesame Street, where everybody walked uh, down the street and threw one piece of trash down. And then there was this huge pile of trash and they went to all the characters and like, did you, did you create this big pile? And all of them were like, no, I didn't do that. Right. And so we're trying to unbundle everything that contributed to these. So enough um, about that grant project, but it is uh, super exciting. And, you know, we have scholarly uh, conferences and things along those lines. So sorry for the long winded answer, Judge Williams and everybody else who was curious. Um, but we want to ask, oh, go ahead, Judge Williams, were you going to say something? I was just going to say thank you. I, I appreciated that. <laughs> You're most welcome. Um, the um, way that we wanted to get started is we just want to touch base with our administrators, and that would be Taj, who I see is on the line, uh, and Charles. Um, thanks for basically running what it is that we do. I know that Taj, you're the person who is sort of our day-to-day -day contact. And so we just thought that it would be great. We don't know how many people here are relatively new and might just give you uh, an opportunity to say, you know, sort of what it is that uh, you do. What is your specific role vis-a-vis -vis this group um, of mediators? So Taj, could you uh, start us off? Sure. Um, thank you. Well, uh, I, I assume all of you know I'm your administrative pro tem. Uh, so my role is to serve as the liaison between all of you as mediators, um, also for you pro tems who are on the line as well and hearing officers with uh, the bench and um, with the public. Um, I try to get information from all of you about what your needs are to help facilitate you doing your jobs most effectively and most competently. And for that purpose, I reach out to you guys throughout the year 
um, asking for questions, suggestions, ideas of things that you would like additional training on or that you need clarification of. And then I pass that information along to um, the presiding judge and to, of course, Charles, who is our judicial education officer. And using your input to those questions and surveys that I occasionally send out, Charles uh, creates these wonderful training programs that are designed to target the specific issues that you guys have questions about. Um, and additionally, I see myself as a resource so that if you do have questions um, throughout the course of the year when you are appointed and serving, you can reach out to me. And if I don't know the answer, I will help direct you to the individual who would be the best person to answer that question for you. I hope that you found um, that to be the case. I've certainly heard from many of you over the year, and I hope that you continue to reach out to me with any needs you might have. I do like to add the caveat, I don't know everything, <laughs> it should be a given, but my role is to try to help facilitate putting you in touch with the person who might know the thing that you need to know. So sometimes I can't give you a direct answer, but I will certainly try to assist in directing you to the person who can. Thank you. Thank you. Charles, anything to add? Uh, yes, as Taj indicated, I am the Judicial Education Officer and I do work with her to determine what, um, what training sessions we can do for mediators, pro tems, and hearing officers. And this session, along with uh, several sessions that we've done for the last few years, are available as audio podcasts. And then one of the things we've taken advantage of during the pandemic is learning how to do webinars. And so this, along with pretty much everything we've done the last two years, will also be put on YouTube with a secret link. So um, if, if you can't find it if you don't have that secret link. Uh, it will be available on YouTube to watch. Uh, and we do have a uh, Hytale Internet uh, resource that has uh, materials for everything we've done for the last eight years. And so there's a almost 200 sessions in there. Uh, so there's a great deal of resources uh, that are available to everybody as well. All right, and Charles, if you would advance the, the slot to the next slide, that would be great. Um, so it has a couple of questions that uh, we wanted to throw out to you. And the first one really is about telephonic mediation. Um, we've been doing it uh, for basically the entirety of the pandemic and telephonic mediation seems to be ongoing. Um, are there plans on changing, keeping it? Uh, just curious about that. And uh, it's great that you should ask that um, because one of the things that came up in um, the, uh, the, the Chief Justice's uh, Plan B report, he, he just did an administrative order that um, adopted the Plan B report on what will stay uh, virtual and what will go back to in-person. And as you can see, the presumption is, um, for mediation conferences is that they remain remote. Uh, so that is a presumption um, and the Supreme Court order uh, requires the chief uh, requires the presiding judge in each county to make the final decision as to what to implement in the county, uh, and so uh, that Judge Welty may change that. I don't think he will, 
so the presumption is going to be that they will remain remote. Uh, interesting. Well, that's really good to know. And um, I think that most of us have probably enjoyed the uh, phone back and forth. It has its downfalls, but it seems that we get more people, we're having more mediations other, as opposed to having as many um, where we don't have, or fewer no-shows, I guess, is the, is the situation. Um, so, hi. yes. Um, hi, my name is Libby Dwyer, and um, this is my first year in mediating in this program, but I have mediated for several years um, in all kinds of programs. And my personal reaction to what I've been seeing in the mediation is that we're getting more attorneys involved in it and they are not happy with the process. Um, they like the idea of being able to break off and talk to you and my personal experience is that when you break off, you get a better idea of where each person is coming from. So when you get them together, you are more able to come up to a mutual and better agreement for them. So um, this telephonic thing I find is um, people are, the more that I'm seeing of it, it's really people are not happy with it just my well, personal experience and um and uh um, no, excuse me and how the reaction is to it you know so this is a good point um we, i should have done something earlier i should have told you what our sort of agenda is so my apologies for that so um, we are going to have a mediators roundtable. So we're going to have uh, talk just a couple things now. We're going to ask about badges. Then we're going to review the um, justice court forms. Um, there are a couple questions on that. And I see Paul Winbert is on the line. Um, he's made some suggestions that we're going to go through um, and on the forms. And then after that, we're going to have the mediators roundtable. And Lily, Libby, that's the perfect time. In fact, we were going to talk specifically about caucusing on telephones to see sort of what our collective wisdom is on what works best uh, in those situations. Because certainly not, I mean, it can be difficult um, to not have um, caucusing whatsoever. Um, and then after that, there was some, somebody submitted some uh, landlord tenant questions to Taj when she put out her call for requests for questions. So we're gonna talk about those, take a short break, and then we will come back and do some spend an hour of uh, ethics on ethics type questions. So Libby, thanks for that. Um, and thanks for prompting me to um, do something that I had forgotten to do um, at the beginning. Um, so we're gonna put a pin in that one and come back to it. Uh, Taj, we have a new um, uh, badge renewal that we've had this past year. I know that- We do. So could you tell uh, us a little bit about that just to make sure that everybody knows what um, what the yes. rules are. So I do try very hard to listen to the input from the pro tems hearing officers and mediators that I hear when I call and when I talk to you guys and when you send me little passing comments and in, in other emails. And one of the things that I've continually heard, um, I've been in this position for about a year and a half now. Um, it might seem like I've been here longer, but I haven't just a year and a half. And in about that year and a half, one of the, 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 things that I've heard a lot from you guys is 
at the end of the application process, everyone has to go and get their badges renewed every year. And I know it's a hassle for you guys to go down there and pick up your forms and, and all of that. So I did last year reach out to um, our Sean Gibbs, who is our security uh, director, and see if there was something um, that we could do to make that a little bit easier for you guys. I was trying to get it so that the badges stayed indefinitely until you no longer were an appointed mediator hearing officer or pro tem. I was not able to get that for everyone, but what I do have is now you guys as hearing officers and or mediators only have to renew your badges every three years. And the reason for the three years, according to Sean Gibbs, is that um, the count, there is apparently a county policy requirement that requires that you guys get background checked uh, and that the fingerprints have to be repeated every three years to ensure that you continue to have the clean records that you are required to have to serve in these positions and that no new disqualifying offenses have occurred from the time that you were appointed um, subsequently into the future. So uh, that is why it is it's based on the fingerprinting requirement, which is every three years. And I did have some questions from people back when I first explained this to you guys in an email in December of last year. Well, can't you just use the fingerprints we have on file? And I asked and followed up. And the, the response that I received from security on that is that your fingerprints, when you get those taken, those are taken electronically on a computer screen and then erased. It's not like in the old days where we're using the print cards anymore, apparently. So they're not keeping your fingerprints on file after they take them on those computer screen. Those electronic prints are not stored in the system, and that's why they need to redo the prints every three years, because any previous prints that were taken are no longer available. So yes, um, I, I wasn't able to get it permanently, but now you don't have to go out every year, just every three years and renew your badge. Um, and your so thank you for that. Um, thank I, you, Taj. <laughs> You're welcome. We really appreciate it. Um, and I'm really glad to know that uh, that the court is not uh, keeping our fingerprints on file for a long time. Um, exactly. <laughs> gives me a little bit of, of uh, good feeling. All right, um, Charles, could you yeah, switch the slide? We're gonna talk about um, the suggestions that Paul made. Um, and I see that Paul is on the line. So Paul, if there's anything you wanna add after I talk about each one, uh, please do. Um, so the first one is the mediation agreement, right? This is when they come up uh, with a deal in one way or another. And uh, I'm going to pay Kristen, you know, $2,000 over time or whatever it is. Um, and so uh, if you could change the slide, uh, Charles, it gets to the specific um, thing. I don't know how clear this is. Oh, there it is. It's, it's clear now. Um, Paul suggested that, right, this has been this has been this form for a very, very long time, all payments made in these kinds of ways, um, to add some options for electronic payments. Um, I know that a lot of people uh, pay into portals nowadays and things along those lines. Um, and so what's, I mean, I guess the question really is, this is Paul's suggestion. Paul, is there anything you want to add to this suggestion?
Paul, I see that your microphone is unmuted. Um, is there anything to add? Well, maybe Paul's having some microphone difficulties uh, on his computer. Um, so it seems that, I guess the question is, would anybody have any problems with this or any added suggestions for an electronic payment box? And I don't know that we need to say that it would be linked to a debit or a credit card, but some form of electronic payment. Anybody have any um, suggestions or comments about that? Yeah, I, I think it should just be electronic payment or automatic payment because um, it could be linked to your checking account. So we, we don't need to say what it's linked to. All right. I think just and, electronic. And if, oh, go ahead. and if everyone agrees that that's a good idea going forward, that's something that you guys would like to see. I can uh, see about getting those forms adjusted like we did previously and add that on. That shouldn't be a problem. We just want to make sure that everyone thinks that's a good idea. And, and the, the uh, I do know the chair of the forms committee, and he is very handsome and very intelligent. So um, he will be willing and open to make changes that are suggested. Um, I have a, um, a comment on that. As long as the, um, the credit card number is not visible for the party who is going to have the money taken out of their account, um, as either the plaintiff or the defendant, I would not be happy with the other person seeing my checking account number or any of the personal information. And if they're going to get copies of the agreement form and it's going to have that information, I don't think that's a good idea. I agree completely on that. We don't want to have bank records right there. Um, I don't think that information has to be provided on the form. I think it's just the box indicating how the payment's going to or anticipated to be made. Well, so, if you're not going to put the information on the form, then where is the information going to appear? I usually just make a note when that happened that parties made electronic, you know, and made arrangement for electronic payment. That's what I do now on the other there, instead of putting the address. I mean, I don't need to write down what the electronic agreement was. So maybe what we could do is we could get rid of hand delivered and just put delivered to, so that it could have like the website or something like that where it needs to go. And because we, I know that I agree, and I think all of us would agree, putting your uh, credit card information, these can become public documents, you know, once they're, if they're filed with the court, and that's just not a good place to have anybody's debit or credit information. Any other yeah, comments Art? on this? Yes. Art, is this the appropriate time? Yeah. Is this is the appropriate time on the mediation outcome notice to discuss other recommendations were submitted and uh, I don't know if they showed up. Um, well, we're going to the outcome notice next. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. let me tell you what we uh, what we have on this one. 
Um, and this is our happy-go-lucky uh, mediation outcome notice. And I believe that the question is about um, the, this part here on full agreement and contingent settlement. So just to go over, um, we can use, right, there is, and this is something that Taj and I were uh, talking about um, a couple weeks ago. So we added the contingent settlement portion to this form um, this past year. And I know that uh, I still get some of these forms without the contingent settlement language there. Um, so look for that and make sure that's on there. Okay, thanks, Paul, for the note. Appreciate it. Um, make sure that it's there so that you know that you're using the most up-to-date forms. Um, so what is the contingent settlement? It's one of those where the payment system is going out for a long time. Uh, and outside of the six months that the um, outcome notice talks about right now. And so what happens is then your debt collectors will say, okay, um, I'm going to do the forms. We've got a settlement here, but it's, you know, it's not finalized because we don't have, we, we basically have the understanding terms, but the papers need to be signed, et cetera. And so contingent settlement was what we agreed on last year. Um, to deal with those kinds of situations so that they could be counted essentially as settlements because these are cases that are going to resolve uh, more than likely, um, probably more than a 97% chance. Um, so make sure you use that box. But the question is, why do we need six months anyway? And then, Ken, we'll get to your question. Maybe this is your question, Ken. Is this your question, Ken? No, no. Okay. All right. So what's the, what's so special about six months taj do you have a taj or charles do you have an answer for us um i'm i'm sorry i'm on a call right now with another individual i i wasn't able to pay attention so i'm i'm getting off of this call in just a moment i'm, I'm helping another hearing officer uh so i can't respond right now i do apologize sure thanks charles can you uh, well and, and judge williams can can pop in and, and answer this as well, but the the reason, you know, but the main reason is judges don't want cases left open. We do have time standards, and um, judges do want cases closed and disposed of. Um, furthermore, the the mediation agreement, the settlement agreement, is a new contract, and if for some reason the payments aren't made as per that agreement then a new lawsuit can be filed to enforce the mediation agreement. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, there really isn't any reason to leave the case open at all. Judge Williams? So I agree. The, the only thing I would add is we have a best practice that says you're not supposed to leave the case open um, forever. So it, it can be a problem because people don't want judgments against them. And so if, if, you, if you're not in the mediation setting and it's a stipulated judgment with a, a covenant not to execute and there's a payment plan, the problem is there's a judgment. Whereas in a mediation setting, the case can technically be dismissed. And if the uh, debtor violates the, the payment plan, then they could sue on the new uh, contract to enforce the mediation settlement agreement. Some creditors are more 
interested in doing that than others, but the the goal um, is to get the plaintiff paid without the defendant having a judgment against them. So um, my understanding was that six months was picked because that there were specific timing standards related to six months, but am I hearing that we could change it to nine months or something else or um, what are those timing standards? Uh, I don't have those specific time standards here, but um, I, I don't think it's going to be changed to nine months. That, I mean, leaving it open for nine months is akin to not accomplishing anything at all. So that, that isn't going to change as far as I can see, Judge Williams. I agree. And the, the six months, or the, our time standards run from the date the complaint is filed. So if it takes four months to serve the complaint, then we've already busted our time standard before the judge even knows the cases in the courtroom or in the courthouse. But the, I, I guess I don't know why six months was standard was chosen. It may have just been random. Um, a, a lot of people can't pay off the debt in six months, depending upon what how, how large the debt is. So I, I don't. Not every court uses mediation, so I, I don't know if you just left it blank. If there would be a a big uproar or not, or you could say six months or, and then put a blank in. And I don't know that um, there would be that much, um, or th that doing so would generate that many complaints. The and it would give mediators more flexibility if that's what they're seeking. Yeah, I think I think the uh, high volume uh, creditors would have a problem with that um, because they're the ones. Uh, well, first of all, right, we used to have cases that would be on the court docket for years um, to avoid the judgment. Uh, and <clears throat> the high volume creditors want to get it done and get everything rolling and get the protection that they need. So I don't see them not uh, going with the judgment going forward. I don't think they have a problem necessarily with the six months. Um, and I don't know that sort of leaving a blank and keeping it open longer, although uh, an interesting solution, I think that they, they want the certainty is what they're uh, really in for. So six months has seemed to work. I, I think that we're probably good on that. Uh, Charles, you're saying that we're not gonna change uh, from six months. So it looks like this one is not gonna be something that we're gonna be able to work on um, going forward. Uh, Ken, you have another question about the outcome notice? Yeah, some time ago I submitted some suggestions, one of which was um, a request for continuance there's a chance, probably a good chance, that the second mediation will not be held by the first mediator. And so the mediator goes in there and has absolutely no idea why it was continued. So I think I submitted something with uh, the rationale for the continuance, um, the number of days uh, that they're requesting, and um, what yeah, basically the rationale and the number of days, 
so that the next mediator, if it's not the same one, has a, a, at least a little background on it. And the second issue was um, making the drop-down men menu in the case report system mirror the outcome notice. It does not. Um, example, there is no drop-down item for both parties not attending. All right. So um, I, I think, it, you know, I don't think that's a hard thing to do to have the drop-down menu mirror what the outcome notice is and then add to the outcome notice the rationale for requesting a continuance. So the request for continuance, I, I know that a lot of people put that in the other um, category, but we usually don't put the rationale. I haven't seen much about um, the rationale. What, what rationales did you have on your um, suggestion? Uh, you mean an example of a rationale I have used? Well, so would you fill in a blank or were they more check boxes? That's my question. No, 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 it's under other where I, I write up why they have requested a continuance, whether they're waiting for receipts from American Express, whether they're uh, waiting because the uh, disclosure was sent out late and they need time to review it. There are a whole bunch of reasons to request a continuance. Right, right. I'm you sorry. Know, I'm so yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, please. No, I'm done. Go ahead. I was going to say, so are you uh, suggesting that we uh, do a better job of putting that into the other category or something else? Another category, request to continue and still leave the other. Uh, and then fill in the rationale in the other? No. A new item says request for continuance, reason, X, Y, Z, number of days requested, blank and then leave other for other notes that you want to put in there. All right. So then I was asking you, what are those XYZ rationales that you want to have in there? I just said that like they're waiting for disclosure or they just got the disclosure the day before the mediation need time to review. They're waiting for documentation from a, a credit card company, right? One guy called up. I can't talk. I have uh, COVID, you know, there are a whole bunch of reasons that you can put in there. Got it. Okay, I misunderstood what you were saying. I thought you were talking that you that we could put uh, reasons in the other category. Um, no. So I think the thing for this then is probably for us to get, um, to, if you could resend that um, suggestion so that we could basically talk it through a little bit more and get all those rationales out there so that we could so that we could make that work. Um, that makes sense. And then uh, with regard to the case report system and it not mirroring the outcome notice, um, Taj or Charles, is this something that um, uh, you could at least talk, talk to for a moment? This is Taj. I'm not aware of what the uh, drop-down menu shows currently on that form and, and how it differs from the outcome notice, but I imagine that can be tweaked or fixed so that it mirrors it if that's something you guys feel would be helpful for you. All right, so we've got some movement on that. Ken, if you could just submit those, uh, 
maybe just resend it to Taj. Um, that would be great so that she can get, get it down uh, properly. And then and, and we're gonna be clear, Ken, when you are listing, I understood and took notes of what you're requesting to have a new box um, providing for a request for continuance that you can check. And then a reason. Um, my question is, are you requesting that the reason be a blank line where the individual types in or fills in the reason? Or yes. are you requesting that it be no. a a, down a, 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 a. A blank line. Okay, so there's no yeah, need to. Yeah, and I act, well, and when I submitted these suggestions, I actually um, gave an example of how to format it. So I will resend it. Okay, thank you. All right, our last uh, suggestion that we got from Paul uh, was on the disclosure and confidentiality agreement. Um, and the first one, uh, if you take a if you take a look at the um, mediation and confidentiality agreement. Uh, Charles, you could, if you could uh, forward the page, please. We used to have, you can see, this is the old language. Uh, look at bullet point number two. All, take, all notes taken during the mediation session shall be given to the mediator for disposal at the conclusion of the session. Well, now that we're on the phone, that's pretty much impossible for us to do. Um, and, and you're going to, even if people were there, you had an attorney there, they're going to wrestle you for their notes. They're not going to hand them over. Um, and so this has been suggested a couple of times, but uh, we've kept it in for a while. Uh, but now the change, actually, Taj, have you made this change already? Did you make the executive call and taking that out because we are on the phone all the time? Um, I, I have not made that change. I will have to take a look at that form and see if it's, if it's, if it already has that. I will look into that. Okay. But no, I have, not, I have not made any changes to the forms. I send those change requests to the forms um, person. So I have not made a request for that change. All right. So this is one we've been talking about for years and it hasn't been implemented yet. Is there anybody who has any comments uh, about this to um, anything else on this possibility? Art, I believe when I was creating this and you sent over the forms, there is already a form with that one taken out. So that's why it indicates an implemented change rather than a suggested change. So there are forms, at least that we had on file, that already have this eliminated, if that's helpful. Taj, I see your microphone unmuted. Yes, because if there is, then that was done prior to my tenure as APT, in which case if people are not seeing that on the forms they're using, it may be that they're using older forms. All right, well, maybe this is something we can also uh, reach out to the um, um, court managers about. And there was one other suggested change on this about the testifying in court proceedings. Thanks, Charles. Um, and basically, I think, Paul, you were suggesting a more precise um, discussion of what, what the confidentiality pertains to, because certainly the confidentiality does not pertain to the underlying facts of what happened and things along those lines. We know that this is mostly about new information or things that um, 
the bargaining associated with uh, settlement back and forth. So this is what we've had for a long time that uh, no parties can testify about discussions that occurred during the mediation session. I believe that this is straight out of the statute, um, but I could be wrong uh, on that. I'll have to take a quick look, about, look at it. Um, any thoughts on this particular topic? Has anybody had questions from um, mediation participants along these lines? Um, I had observed uh, mediation where uh, the mediator did, when they spoke about this, did say that if the judge asks you something that did not pertain to the facts, but that actually happened in the mediation in a roundabout way, that then you can discuss it. Does that make sense? Like if you say, you know, I would have um, offered $2,000 and then the judge goes, well, you know, what would you think? And he goes, well, I offered $2,000 in mediation. So it sort of sometimes comes out. It sometimes comes out, and one of the uh, exceptions is if everybody, um, if all the parties to the mediation agree. Um, but if we're going to be sticklers under the statute, the answer that that's not supposed to come in. Um, and I know it's going to be difficult for, um, particularly an unrepresented litigant, to say, I, "I'm not going to answer your question, Judge," because of the mediation statute. Um, but I guess if it comes out, it comes out, even if it's improper. I don't, I don't know that we can, I don't know if we can, um. No, I totally understand. And I was just, you know, saying that I had observed where, um, the parties were told, you know, if the judge asks you something that was involved in mediation, then you can tell them. So, but. That, um, that's not right. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but I'm sure that it happens. Um, let's see, uh, Paul, you have, I see that you have a comment here. Um, several, several participants thought that this language was ambiguous uh, in your mediations. Well, we can start to work. I don't think that it's good for us to draft language in the committee uh, as a whole. So maybe we can start to uh, come up with some suggestions and then circulate um, that around. Um, it looks like we have about 15 minutes left before we're going to be taking a break and we want to do the mediators roundtable. Um, and Libby, I said that we were going to put a pin in your question. So you were basically saying uh, it's difficult to do caucusing. Um, is, that, is that a fair sort of short version of, of your comment? Um, yeah, some mediators don't like to do caucusing, even if they were in person. And I had a situation when I did a mediation last week, the, the system did not allow for, if you're going to do a telephonic, to be able to put a person on hold so the other person can't hear it and then go back. But we don't have a phone system where you can do that. 
So being telephonic, you have no ability to caucus. And in the situation that I had, there were um, several parties and they weren't in the same location and they wanted to talk. For instance, it was the, uh, the, the defendant's attorney and the insurance company's attorney they wanted to talk together, but they weren't in the same locations, but they didn't even have the ability to caucus among themselves to come back and give the plaintiff any options. So that was a problem. Um, that totally makes sense. Susan, do you want to address this one? Okay, so um, this has come up before, Libby, and I know that there are some people on this call that um, choose not to caucus. So it might be interesting to get their feedback also on how they handle this. But I can speak um, for working with some of our students. Art and I run into this situation. And one way to do that is you're on a conference line. That's what you're talking about. You call in to a conference line in the court and everybody's on a joint call together, correct? Yeah. And if you need to um, caucus, what we have done is have um, parties get off the phone call and they stay on the conference line. So let's say it's the plaintiff. Um, it will say, we're going to talk to you for a few minutes and then the other parties get off the line and you can actually tell that they are off and they're not on. Um, the problem with this is that you have to give a best estimate as to when to call back in. So you might say, defendant, I'm going to talk to the plaintiff for, um, you know, 10 minutes, please call back in in 10 minutes or 12 or 15. And then you have a caucus and then they call back in and then you switch it around and your plaintiff gets off the line and then you're caucusing with the defendant and back and forth and you use that line now in your case if they're not in the same location um you're thinking well how can i join all the calls and the best answer i have for you on that is our cell phones and i know that mediators don't like that idea but during the pandemic it is something that i did use and on your phones you can add calls in so as a scenario you could have the attorney and the insurance company call in and you could have a caucus with them because you could join all those calls on your phone and you might not mind having other professionals uh, perhaps use your cell phone number or know it. Um, that was just an idea. Art, do you want to chime in about what you do with the students? Yes, sorry. Um, I think, uh, Libby, the situation that you're talking about, you could have the plaintiff or whoever, the one who wasn't going to be a part of that conversation just basically uh, drop off the line for the 10 or 15 minutes. But that's, so I really don't have anything more to add. Susan described what we do. And I'll be interested to hear after Libby, you make a comment, um, what other people do. Well, in the situation that I had the other day when I did it, um, we actually, in order to conference everybody, 
the plaintiff was not able to call in. We had to call them because there weren't enough lines for the people to call in to be on the conference. So we had to call the plaintiff while the defendant, the two defendant parties were on the line. Yeah, our, um, the problem of caucusing still exists if you have a Scopia line. However, if you don't have a Scopia line, it's very, very difficult to connect more than two different lines. So what Libby is talking about, she was in a, a court that doesn't have a Scopia line for mediations and has a, had a significant number of participants. So it, it, it was not easy. Um, the Scobie line would avoid half the problem. Right. But let right. me just chime in here with, let's, let's keep in mind that when, when we went virtual with mediation, it happened because uh, all of a sudden it had to happen. Uh, but as we saw with the Plan B report, if this is going to become our permanent future, we are going to make improvements to the process, and we are rolling out Court Connect um, virtual software for our courtrooms, uh, which does allow people to appear virtually like we are now. And I believe that may have the ability to have breakout rooms. And so, you know, I, I suspect that a mediation where you can actually see faces is going to be a better option than one where you're just hearing disconnected voices. Um, so, you know, let's let's hope that um, the software gets better as as we move forward. Oh, that's good news um, to know. So thanks for that, uh, Charles. But I do think really, I mean, if, if you're in one that's in, in a room that doesn't or in a court that doesn't use Scopia, the best the best thing that we've found is asking a party to hang up and just call back in in a certain amount of time. Um, you know, and if they call back and you're not done, we just ask them, give us five more minutes. You know, everybody seems to be pretty understanding um, the limitations and all. So that seems to be um, working for us. Um, Kristen, do you want to do one of the roundtable discussions or do you want to go to the uh, landlord tenant concerns? Sorry, I'm muted. <laughs> um, I think that we can do either because the landlord tenant discussions were brought up as something that um, was raised as a conversation that wanted to be had during this me meeting. Maybe it makes sense to jump over there since we only have a little bit left before we have our break. And why don't you take the lead? So um, in your materials that you received, we did send over the Landlord-Tenant Act. There were a few questions that Taj had received from mediators about different landlord-tenant issues. Um, I will preface that a lot of the questions that came through are more the law in terms of legal advice that attorneys may provide their clients rather than neutral information that we can provide as mediators. But the first situation that came up was a question of who is actually sued in a landlord-tenant issue. 
So the issue that was brought forward by a mediator was that the tenant was working exclusively with the project manage the property manager and ultimately had issues with receiving payment back from a security deposit. When they brought the issue to the property manager, the property manager refused to give out information about the property owner. And thus the case was filed by the tenant against the property manager. And the manager claimed that the plaintiff was suing the wrong party and wouldn't disclose the matter further. So in terms of how to handle that case, does anyone have any perspectives on what they would do in that specific situation? I don't hear anyone jumping in and I'm not seeing any chats. Um, so something to think about is who is actually going to be on the case and if the right party is being brought forward. Um, in this case, as the property manager, you would be, the tenant would be suing the property manager for specific issues handled by the property manager, not in regards to the property. They instead, if there's an issue with the property, would need to be bringing that against the property owner. Now, typically when I read this, I thought it was very interesting because I have never heard of a property manager that would not disclose the information of the property owner. That's typically someone that is listed on the contract itself. Most landlord tenant cases are going to have the contract signed by both the property manager, the property owner, as well as the tenant. And even if that's not the case, the property manager would need to have a contract in place that is signed between the property manager and the owner themselves. So this is really, I think, more of an issue of communication and contract, being that there should be communication between the property manager and the tenant regarding who the property owner is. But ultimately, the biggest issue when it comes to these questions that were brought up are contract issues. Any comments on this one before we go to the other one? Would this kind of be a situation that the manager is um, being held out as the person, the corporation or the owner is giving them the responsibility to represent them? So in that kind of position, wouldn't they actually be a spokesperson and whatever they say would hold on for the corporation? It's a great question. So typically that is going to be designated within the contract between the business. In most cases, a property manager and a property owner, when they sign a contract, it very specifically designates that the property owner is the person responsible for the property itself and the property manager is simply just acting in a management capacity. The other option could potentially be bringing both the property manager and the property owner to mediation, but just making sure that all of the applicable parties are present. Um, and if I might jump in Libby, um, 
the answer to your question is yes, the property manager may be the person who appears as the corporate representative at um, the mediation and may be the person, and if they're not represented, is the one who is representing the entity because you know that's part of their job duties. But that doesn't mean that that individual can be sued in their personal capacity um, unless there is something that has arisen between these two. Otherwise, the way that this reads, this sounds like it's a security deposit issue, and this would be the wrong party uh, is the defendant in this particular case. I, I am the one who, who put up the question. The issue was, uh, is, is explained exactly as it took place. The problem is that the property manager not only would not disclose who the, there was nothing on the contract that it would indicate who the owner is, and then she would not disclose who it was, nor uh, she just walked out. She says, you, no, no, she would discuss it. She says, I says, no, it's, um, I'm the wrong party, goodbye. I love it. <laughs> Welcome. Say, that sounds like just a really uncooperative party. I, I found these interesting because the second issue as well um, on the next slide is a, regarding security deposit and walkthroughs too. And like, what is the purpose of a walkthrough if... And that if is it's also my question. Forward and just say that they want, um, that they want to make changes after the walkthrough. When it comes to landlord-tenant law in general, in terms of my broad understanding, is it favors landlords a lot more than tenants. So when we were researching these questions, there was not a substantial amount of information saying that. For example, a party couldn't be disgruntled and just say, well, I don't want to give you that information or I am just going to do a walkthrough. To me, in that first situation, I and mean, that you brought up, it sounds more like a disgruntled party that's just not willing to participate in mediation. And then there may need to be other actions that are taken to be able to get that information from the property manager since they just seem uncooperative. At least yeah, me. but I'm a mediator. How can I? How can I make it do anything? I don't have the authority to do anything, and that's one of the things I stress that any agreement has to be between the two parties, and I cannot impose mm -hmm. anything upon them. So, you know, you know, outside of uh, saying the sayonara, what else do I do? So really our, I'm happy to have you jump in as well. From my perspective, mediating, we do have those limitations. Like we don't have the ability to force a party to mediate or to participate right. or be able to resolve it for the client, right. even though in a lot of cases, I mean, I know particularly with someone that is unrepresented or doesn't have the support, we want to be able to reach out and do that. But are, if you were in the court, what would you specifically do in this context? Well, if I was in the court, it was a different story. I know what to do. But as a mediator, you know, the, the, the other party wants, wants to know who the hell she's supposed to sue. He or she is supposed to sue, and she has no idea. Yeah. And not so everybody, two, not, not everybody's bright enough. It, it, most people are dumb like me, and they don't know what, where to go look for for this type of information. Uh, you know, I... I I can hardly log on to go to meeting, uh, let alone trying to find out where the hell do I find somebody's name and address. Right, right. Well, there's not much that we can do on that front. Right. Uh, we can't find That's it for fine. them. Um, we kind of have to let them figure it out for themselves. So the first thing that um, 
is a good thing to do is just to ask the person who wants to leave, have you filed a motion to dismiss yet? What are you doing on that end to see what their plan is going forward, just to get them to engage in the conversation with you. Secondly, then uh, basically you just have to assign, give the, give the plaintiff a homework assignment of finding out who owns that property, who owns that right. apartment building and to go to the, they'll have to go to the, um, Recorder of Deeds, I guess, is probably the place to go. But Judge Williams, I see you on the line, um, which makes me think that you have something to add here. <laughs> um, it, your microphone indicates that it's on, but we're not able to hear you. Is there, you wanna turn it off and turn it back on again? Charles, we're still not getting anything, at least on my end. Is there anything you can do on your end? Can you type it into the chat box fast, or maybe you need to disconnect and reconnect? Why don't we, well, okay. Judge Williams, do you wanna try, oh, he's reconnecting. We, we can move on and let him pop back in with. Yeah, let's, uh, Kristen, why don't you uh, discuss situation two a little bit more and finish that one out. Sure, so as I briefly covered with situation two, the question was of a walkthrough. So some tenants and landlords will do a walkthrough at the beginning and end of their property um, being used by that tenant to determine what things need to be done to the property after the fact. So for example, deductions from the security deposit for damage to walls or cleaning or those pieces. Um, with that, what we had talked about amongst ourselves, Susan, Art and I, is a lot of these issues come down to contract drafting and how the contract is drafted. It doesn't specifically indicate in the Landlord-Tenant Act that there has to be a walkthrough or that a walkthrough is the only way to determine if any changes need to be made to the property. Instead, it indicates that the tenant needs to leave the property in the same condition it was or similar. That's a abbreviated version of the actual law act itself. And that the landlord can really kind of deduct anything from the security deposit if any changes need to be made. One way to avoid this is making sure that they have the contract and understanding what is in the contract. For example, is there a cleaning fee? Is there a fee within that contract that dictates that the property is always going to be repainted after the property is vacated and that cost is coming through? There's no kind of clear line, as far as I can read in the Landlord-Tenant Act, again, without having more legal advice and background in this area that would dictate that a walkthrough is necessary or that it is the final say when it comes to what changes need to be made. I have a question. When the agents, property manager, whoever, if they do do a walkthrough, aren't they acting as the agent of the landlord? 
and if they don't note that there was anything that needed to be done, how can the landlord go back because he didn't actually see it and the property manager was the agent acting for them? Libby, I think that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the argument on the landlord side is that the landlord could have walked through the property after the walkthrough and before someone else moved in. Um, again, typically the property manager will handle the issues for the landlord, but the landlord is usually the person that the claim is brought with. Um, so I think this is a difficult place just from a general mediation standpoint of just the power dynamic, where if the law typically favors one party over the other, and there aren't clearly written guidelines within a contract, it can get very muddy like this, where it's hard to determine, especially in mediation, which way it's going to go because it's left up to a lot of interpretation in terms of a judge or attorneys arguing to a judge in either direction as to did the landlord see the property did they not did the walkthrough count or did it not were there other provisions that were in the contract so that's where it can be challenging where there is a contract that does not have a lot of terminology and there is a power dynamic at play in mediation because of the law. Right, thank you. And, is the microphone working now? Uh, it is working now. Oh, okay. Uh, my answer to the last, my suggestion to the last uh, hypothetical was that, um, and I don't know how much mediators want to get into this, but you can explain that there's a discovery process and that the the defendant can submit uh, either, you know, written interrogatories or, or request for production of documents or something uh, to the other side that requires the disclosure of who the the owner is. Um, the owner is supposed to be disclosed in the lease, but you you can certainly do that, and you can explain that if you continue to fail to do that, then you'd be subject to sanctions potentially. I, I don't know if. if if mediators want to go that far or not. My suggestion on the, the walkthrough uh, issue is that the landlord has to prove their case. And if they're alleging damages that weren't present at the walkthrough, they're going to have a, a significant proof problem. One of the areas of landlord-tenant law that I, I think arguably favors the tenant a little bit is in the uh, wrongfully withholding the security deposit because the tenant can get trouble damages. So that's something potentially you can point out if you're if you're if you view your role as a mediator is to point out weaknesses in one of the one of the cases for for one of the sides. You can say, hey, look, and and maybe do this in a in a privately or a, a caucus or however you want to phrase that. But you can say, look, it. If, if you're going to try to allege damages that weren't present at the lock, at the walkthrough, for all we know, the maintenance man, you know, you know, put the scrape on that wall, and you're going to have a hard time proving that. So maybe you should go with the damages you can prove at the time of the walkthrough. Otherwise, you run the risk of of having a, a trouble damage award against you. I don't know how effective that is, but um, it, it's at least potentially a tool that you have. Thank you, sir. And sometimes there are people who just really want to go to trial, 
and they want to go to court and they want to prove their case and sometimes you just say good luck <laughs> um, so speaking of good luck uh, we did build in a short break since this is a two-hour program and I know that uh, Charles had uh, has us scheduled to go to 1145 and right now it's 1038 so why don't we take about a five-minute break is that what you had in mind Charles sure all right, so uh, we'll be back on the line at 1045. Everybody take your biology break and we'll see you in five. This conference will now be recorded. Welcome back. All right, thanks for, thanks for taking that short break. Um, so we're gonna go into ethics and um, Susan, do you wanna lead us here or do you want me to do the lead? Where am I? Get you and be unmuted. All right. Am I there? Yep. Um, no, we can um, just do an overview, but I, I like how you have categorized them. So why don't you start, Art? And uh, Chris and I will chime in, but we um, have a schedule. So let's keep with our schedule. Yeah. Um, and I do want to point team. out that, that Judge Williams did put a question in the chat for everybody. Um, and I'm going to suggest that uh, answer that question in the chat. Uh, please, just so that we can uh, mm. stick to the rules on the number of amount of time spent on um, ethical issues here. Um, so basically, the model rules, uh, the model, model standards of conduct for mediators are, um, and I think I say this almost every year, so I apologize to those of you who have heard me say it many, many, many times. It's an agreement through three professional organizations, um, the American Bar Association's Dispute Resolution uh, Section, the uh, AAA, that's the American Arbitration Association, and the um, ACR Association for Conflict Resolution. They came up with these uh, in the early to mid 90s. They revised them in 1999. They're in the materials um, that are part of this program. And how do those get applied? Are they codified or anything like that? They are not codified. They are not the. They do not have the rule of law in Arizona, uh, or probably any other state. But I don't know for sure on other states. Um, typically, what happens is mediation programs like this one in the court um, adopt them and say we're going to be guided by these principles in these standards. Um, I don't believe that that's happened in this court, but I could be wrong. And even if they're not, if they haven't. Um, they would probably be <clears throat> the standards that would be um, out there and used in some kind of situation. Now, just to reiterate something that uh, we talked about, in fact, this was Ken's question maybe last year or the year before, can we get sued and things along those lines if we um, violate these ethical standards? Can you get sued? Yes, you can get sued, but the Arizona Mediation Confidentiality Statute 122238 listed there on the bottom provides essentially judicial immunity to you as a mediator in your capacity as a mediator. So um, that case is gonna go nowhere really, really fast. Um, maybe uh, you could file a motion to dismiss or the organization you're doing your mediations for would do that um, for you. But do be aware uh, that that is out there. So the categories there are roughly, uh, I think there are 10 um, and what they do is they focus on different things. So two, three, and four focus on the mediator, him or herself. 
Let me pull my uh, copy of the standards out here. And one is self-determination of the parties. Um, and so that's a focus on the party, uh, excuse me, focus on the mediation process. Two, three, and four are impartiality, uh, conflicts of interest, and confidentiality. Excuse me, I skipped a page. Four is competence. Four is competence. Yes, you can laugh at me, Kristen. It is okay. I deserve it when I miss the page and look down. Um, but four is competence. So those three are really talking about uh, the mediator herself. The focus on the process, one is self-determination. Basically, we don't tell the parties and boss them around and what it is that they're supposed to do. Five is confidentiality. And six is quality of the process, ways to make things better. Um, and then the remainders are really about the process itself. Advertising and soliciting in the justice courts, we don't have to worry about that so much. Although, if you wanted to advertise your services and say that you were a justice court mediator, um, make sure that you are a justice court mediator. Any fees that uh, would be, um, you know, going with you would be Section 8, and we're not dealing with that in the justice court um, so much. And then um, Standard 9 is basically, it's called Advancement of Mediation Practices. Make sure that you're taking programs like this so that you're keeping up to date um, on any changes um, back and forth. And so, um, you know, this is a textbook that I use uh, for my students. You can see I have a lot of things sticking out of it. Um, and they have some good uh, questions um, that we, that uh, are ethical in nature, and we thought that we would pass those along um, to you. So, um, Charles, if you could go to the next slide, that would be um, great. So, um, Susan, do you want to do this one, or do you want me to do this one? Okay, wait, unmute. So I was uh, scheduled for scenario two, but hey, you can, well, I, I think you can handle this art. Now, do you okay. want to read these? I'm going to ask people, we can read these, or if you think that this is large enough print and you can see it, uh, we wouldn't have to do that. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read it then. So you are mediating okay. a case between Tom Tennant and Larry Landlord regarding a $100 monthly rent increase. During the mediation, that uh, you learn that Tennant received notice of the rent increase on October 5th and that the rent increase is due to take place on November 1st. You also know that the rent notice is improper because the law of this jurisdiction requires notice to be at least one full rental period, which we don't have here. During the mediation, the landlord says, hey, I've been a landlord for 20 years. I know the law backwards and forwards. Um, if you don't pay me at least $75 a month more, beginning on November 1, I'm gonna have you out on the street by the 10th. The tenant seems persuaded by this last statement and seems ready to settle for $75 increase so as a mediator um what do you do do you let this happen or do you let something else do you go forward and do something um a little bit different um and susan can i ask you what you would do in this situation put you on the spot so, oh yeah so looking at this um it seems that this may be one of posturing a bit and not really knowing um, so I think at this point, the tenant seems persuaded. Um, as mediators, it's really self-determination of the parties. I'm looking at these. So one thing you could say to the tenant is, um, have they, I suppose, you know, talk to anybody, um, in terms of 
landlord tenant law looked at anything or talked to anybody to educate themselves about it. You can also ask them if that's what they want to do or ask them if they want to counter in some way. Because you also know that it is improper and you as a mediator, you're struggling with fairness and helping to educate the party. No. Would you caucus with the, um, with, what would you do with the landlord? Would you caucus with the landlord and say, hey, landlord, that's not the way it works in this jurisdiction. What would you do there? I think you could say that, but in caucus. In caucus? With the landlord. It, with the landlord, you could say that, um, you know, have they read the act? Are they familiar with this? Is this something? Um, and you could say that they're going to have a risk going forward because a judge, we have a judge on the phone, is going to look at this differently were to go to a hearing. Yeah. Um, so what do you say to the tenant in caucus if you're in caucus? I think I had said before, um, you can ask some open-ended questions to the tenant. What do you know about um, perhaps landlord tenant law or statutes? Are they familiar with any? Uh, what did their... Uh, as Kristen had said before, what did the lease say? And um, ask them what their interests are. They want to stay there. Do they want to do this? They have options. Yeah, yeah I think that looking at the lease, uh, if you have a copy of that, um, is probably the most important thing to look at. Presumably, it's not, uh, there's nothing written there. Um, a lot of times, um, people have problems on this one just because you know, they're not following the law, the letter of the law 100%. Um, mm -hmm. And my question is always along these lines, can't they agree to do this if they want to? Um, and I might say, ask the landlord in caucus, what happens if you don't, uh, you know, if this gets bounced because it doesn't follow the law? Um, you know, is this person a good tenant? Do they pay all that kind of stuff? And right. I can imagine the landlord saying, if I have to wait longer, I'm going to raise it even higher, which turns out to be a worse outcome, at least for our tenant. Right. Hmm. So maybe for this, the tenant will, um, so you're balancing that, but you're giving them the opportunity to consider options, right? That's what we do as mediators. Exactly. Right. Exactly right. So don't get too caught up in exactly what the law um, says it has to be. Um, I guess that's really my point there. And let's see, we got a chat, something in the chat here uh, from Christine. Excellent. So basically giving everybody a chance to listen and see if they can change their mind. Because sometimes, as we know, people come in saying very strong things and then they go out doing very different things. Um, Susan, is there anything else that you wanna talk about on this one? Mm, I'm not sure. Kristen, do you have anything you'd like to add, being a property owner? Uh, I think the difference just uh, in my case is mediating is 
Um, when I'm thinking of ethics, I'm always thinking of what is the difference between legal information and legal advice. So as mm -hmm. a mediator, we're not providing legal advice. We can provide legal information. Um, and so having information available to you, if you know that, for example, um, you're going to be handling a certain type of case. I know that I'm in a unique situation because I handle mainly private mediations for family law, but just generally mm -hmm. referencing the statute. So, you know, the, the law typically says X, you two can decide whatever you want. So just making sure that both parties have the same information to balance the power dynamic between them. And then if they decide to do this, then they decide to do this. Um, we have clients every single day that decide to do something that's not what the law says, but it makes sense for them. I also really like what Art suggested of communicating with them and having a conversation about their relationship. I think as mediators, a lot of times we like to kind of stick to the black and white and stick to just the argument at hand, but talking about more of those emotions, having more empathy, and also talking about relationships can be really helpful because that could be something that really changes someone's mind. Well, they're a great tenant. I don't want to go out and find a new tenant. I don't want to go through all of the work of marketing and all the costs associated with that. Is it really worth the $75 a month? Um, so instead of just keeping them at their positions, really looking at their values and their interests to see if that will help them find a better agreement that will work for both of them. But ultimately, if they decide to do something that's not what the law says, that's completely okay. And I agree with you there. And I think that's a good point about uh, legal information versus legal advice. Um, some mediators might, if they have the, they do a lot of landlord tenant in justice court, might have the landlord tenant act there and might just read it. Reading a statute is just giving uh, generic legal information. It's not interpreting or giving advice. Um, it may be a little bit uh, different. I'm just saying uh, I could see a mediator. I think I've been in mediations where somebody's doing that. Art? Yeah, there. Um, I will say that if you just read the statute and stuff like that, parties who have legal information and don't want are taking advantage of those who don't get angry and say, stop giving legal advice. Um, oh, but you're not doing that. Remember, um, Kristen is right and Susan is right. There is a difference between the two. And the way to remember that difference is thinking about speed limits. You're driving, you're the passenger in the car, and you say, oh, look, the speed limit is 35. That is legal information. Legal advice is, Susan, slow down, you're speeding. You are taking the information that you have and you are applying it to the situation at hand. Um, and so, then as the passenger, you would be giving Susan legal advice in that particular situation. If people can take the legal information and it's like a no brainer what to do next, it's still legal information. That does not change at all. Oh, if that's the case, what the law says, then I should do X. Well, that's up to you, right? That's the way that works. I think we're done. We, I think we've, uh, we, we basically got this one from every, <laughs> Corner. Yeah, I'll add one other comment. Um, I think the landlord in that situation really opens it up for you too, saying, I know all of the laws. Also, oh, yeah. the mediator just being humble and saying, I, I bet that you have all this experience and you have done this. This is what the statute says. So 
YouTube can interpret that how you may kind of gives you an opening as well, where then when they come back and they're like, you're giving legal advice, you can say, I'm just showing the statute to see if it lines up with what you're thinking. So kind of playing the humble humility aspect of it as well can give you an opening to prevent conflict between parties when you give information. Okay, our scenario number two. You've just finished a very heated mediation and there was no resolution. All of the paperwork is signed and the parties have left the room. After wiping your brow, you step into the hallway and start walking to the bathroom. On your way, one of the parties, Mrs. Jones, sees you and comes up to ask a question about the following items. The trial date, what to expect at trial, how to get to the highway from the courthouse, and how to prepare a witness list. What do you do and say? And before I get started, or and I'll read the other one. Presume Mrs. Jones asked about directions and it takes a couple of minutes to get the info off of your iPhone. While you are doing that, the other party sees the two of you standing together speaking. What do you do? And before I launch into that, I was just going to ask any of our participants today um, if they had an idea, if they wanted to respond to what they would do. Anybody? I can't see the whole group, so you let me know if somebody has chimed in. Uh, has, do we need more coffee? I mean, is nobody <laughs> responding? There's Ken. Yeah. Oh, Ken. Yeah, Susan, I just tell him to go talk to the, the, the front desk behind the glass. Talk oh. to the people behind the glass. So they come up, Mrs. Jones comes up, she starts asking you this. You say, go to the front desk and you keep walking. Correct. And that's probably a good reason to keep telephonic. That doesn't happen if it's face to face. That doesn't happen when you're telephonic. It does happen oh, when you're face to face. So we will maybe get to the time when people do come in, um, even during the pandemic or in the last year, it's happened rarely, but I have had some litigants actually arrive and be there in person. Uh, we didn't really talk about that or have time during mediator roundtable, maybe. But looking at our standards um, that ART has graciously identified for all of us, one of the ones that comes up, of course, is impartiality. So if you do stay and you're talking to Mrs. Jones after the mediation, you're asking yourselves, well, the mediation has ended. So, you know, I don't have to worry about anything. But as a mediator, confidentiality and the appearance of any kind of partiality is something you have to keep in mind prior to, during the mediation and after the mediation. So I would say standard two uh, B would be important in this situation. A mediator shall conduct a mediation in an impartial manner and avoid conduct that gives the appearance of partiality. Uh, another one that might apply here, just looking at the standards might be a conflict of interest a mediator shall avoid the conflict of interest or, as I said before, the appearance of a conflict of interest during and after a mediation. And 
also subsequent to mediation, several of the standards talk about afterwards. Uh, again, that you'll not establish a relationship with any of the participants that would raise questions about the integrity. Now, in this scenario, it doesn't look like just coming up and having a few words with her wouldn't rise to uh, the occasion or the appearance that maybe you are doing something uh, just with her. But again, it's the appearance. So if you're in a huddle with Mrs. Jones for an extended period of time, that is something to watch out for because the other party would lose trust in not only you, but in the whole process as well. I like what Ken said. It was on the cuff. He's just saying, sure, this is how to get to, here are some directions. Um, you'll get some more information from the clerk if you have any questions. However, again, just to bear in mind, but on the second question about if the other party sees you, what could you do to maybe mm, gain trust back or rapport? What might you say or do? I'm going to ask my fellows here, Art and Kristen, if there's anything that they might say to Mrs. Jones. Um, um, I can jump in if we jump in at the same time. Um, one thing, I mean, it might seem a little silly, but you can, if they're walking past, very loudly comment, like, here are your directions. Ask the other party if they also need directions to make them feel included in the conversation. Right. So that's just kind of a simple option. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Um, yeah, do you also have this concern? Hey, come over here. I'd like to share some of the information we've been talking about. Uh, and Charles, I saw that you had uh, uh, unmuted your microphone. Was there something that you wanted to add there? Yeah, I, I would just call him over and say Mrs. Jones had asked um, these questions, and I just told her to uh, call the front desk or approach the front desk. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Bring. I, I think that's the best thing you can do is bring that person in, and then if that person just continues walking out the door, I mean, you're not going to chase them down in the parking lot, bang on their window. I was just giving directions, right? You're not going to do any of that kind of stuff. Um, but on these things, uh, so Ken is right. If you just say, you know, those are questions for uh, other people to answer, that that works. Sometimes, I mean, you have the trial date right there. You were just there. And mm -hmm. so if you give that information, like the trial date information, probably okay to give. Um, how to get to the highway probably okay to give that information right uh the concern really is about changing roles right what to expect at trial preparing a witness list that can be a tough slope there so you probably want to stay away from that other than i mean i don't know about others but oftentimes when we're closing mediations that don't settle we'll say things like well remember you got to prepare a witness list and that is disclosing everybody who you will call as a witness just like that, right? Nothing extra special. Um, you know, and every, identifying every document and sharing every document that you're going to use at trial. Just that, nothing more. Um, and not getting, you know, specific, not answering specific questions um, on those things. But with the other two, that seems to be pretty routine uh, information. That seems to be 
Um, all right. Um, Kristen, did you want to add some more? Um, no, I do think it's an interesting question, though. I would be interested to hear your and Susan's perspective. Do you think from an ethics standpoint, it matters if they reached agreement or they didn't reach an agreement? Because in this case, they didn't reach an agreement, so nothing was really determined with the mediator. They're presumably never working with the mediator again versus if they were having another meeting with the mediator or if they had reached resolution with the mediator. Um, just curious from the ethics standard perspective if you think there's a difference. Um, I don't think there's a difference because you're really, that's, so right, these questions about, these legal related questions would drop out if they had some kind of resolution. And so it really is about creating future relationships, like subsequent relationships, I guess I should say, um, and the appearance of those. Uh, and you would want to, you know, the answer is the same. You don't want to have that happen as much as you can or as little as you can. So like Charles said, like you said, bringing the other person in on the conversation is probably the best thing to do. Remember, do not chase people down in the parking lot. It makes them afraid. <laughs> no, I, I'd have to agree with that. And I also think that's important to note that, yes, um, it does seem as though the mediation's ended and they're going to be going to trial. So you might be thinking, oh, you know, what does it matter? But um, you can always come back to mediation. They can change their minds about mediation. They might decide, hey, we, um, I want to try it again. And so if they go back into the process, you don't want them leaving with some uh, thought or some feeling that somehow mediation isn't fair or, um, again, all on appearance and perception, name of the game. All right, I think we've, we're done with this one. Um, let's try number three. This one is mine to introduce. So you just completed a grueling three-hour mediation session and reached an agreement, which the parties are reviewing and ready to sign. Suddenly, Mr. Dill says, I just don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Your co-mediator says you've worked hard on this agreement. It's okay to go ahead and sign it. We've been here a long time. We all need to come to closure. Is there an ethical issue here? If so, what is it? And if you dis disagree with your co-mediator's comments, what do you do? Does anyone who's participating have any thoughts on this one? As I think that I have read, um, it may have been John Haynes who said, you can't out-silence a mediator. We will sit here in silence awkwardly as long as we can because it's our talent. <laughs> it's a very abridged version. Yeah, get a different co-mediator. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anybody else? I have to tend that I say that I agree with Ken. Um, the ethical issue here is we don't want to be pressuring people into reaching agreements. So even if we've been in mediation for hours and hours at a time and we're ready to be done, which I think everyone can say they've had one of those cases where they're ready to be done, we don't want to pressure someone into reaching an agreement. Um, in my mind, I always distinguish it between, as I call it, cheerleading. So cheering on the clients to get to a good resolution is very different than saying, 
nope, we're just going to stop talking about it. So you could reframe this as saying, we did put a lot of work into this agreement, but it's really important that you all feel comfortable. So what issues can we address moving forward? You're still being positive and letting them know they did put a lot of effort into it. They did put a lot of thought into these agreements, but always wanting to check in and make sure that they actually feel solid about the agreements that they're in. I think the second piece is if you disagree with your co-mediators comments, what do you do? In mediation, you can always, again, just jump in and bring up your comment as well. So one way could just be, as I just said, you could jump in and say, absolutely, just as, let's just say our co-mediator's name is Joe. Just as Joe said, you did put a lot of effort into these agreements, but we wanna make sure that you're both comfortable with them before you sign them then it doesn't look like you're completely stepping in your co-mediator's toes. You are agreeing with what they brought up, but you are establishing that there needs to be a next step of everyone actually agreeing to the agreement itself and then taking the time to go through that. And then maybe not working with that co-mediator again, I guess is definitely an option or just talking to them after mediation. I think a lot of people, um, get fatigued in mediation, especially with a really long process. So maybe that co-mediator just had a really long mediation. They had a really long day and that was the first thing that came to mind. So talking to them afterwards and just establishing from an ethics standpoint, I didn't feel comfortable pressing them to reach an agreement. Um, that's just something that I would want to be aware of when we're co-mediating together in the future. Susan right. and Art, did you want to add anything or any participants? Uh, can I just say shout out to John Haynes? Um, that's that's <laughs> impressive. Um, you're, you're going that was old a very school. abridged version. I will say that <laughs> that's old school. That's like 1980s mediation. Um, so the um, uh, the thing it, this really is about self-determination, right? Standard one uh, of the um, of the model standards. And so the, I really liked Kristen. I liked your suggestion of agreeing and adding um, with your co-mediator and having that conversation uh, to follow up um, because it could be that your co-mediator, maybe it is like Ken says, you got a, somebody who's just, you don't want to be with anymore. Or it could be that somebody's just tired and they're, they're verbalizing their internal feeling of this needs to be done. Um, right. So, so there you go, Susan, what about you? Um, I, I like that idea. I, for, if it was in person, just to give uh, another shout out, if it was in person and you're having a problem with the co-mediator, you can always take a mediator's caucus. I mean, there is things like that and you could step out and say, oh, we'll need a few minutes, but that may be too, um, Mm, that may highlight this and you don't really want to do that. But I liked your suggestion of saying, oh, um, as Joe said, you've spent a lot of time doing this. And then I might say to uh, the other party, um, do you need more time to consider this? How are you uh, feeling right now? Would you like a few minutes uh, to think about this? I just don't know if I'm doing the right thing. So you might want to ask, well, what else do you need? Is there something else that we can help you with? Again, being open-ended uh, rather than saying, hey, take out your pen and sign right here. 
because you, it really has to be up to the parties and you don't want him to have second thoughts and then call Taj and say, hey, my mediators forced me into this, right? Yeah, that would be bad, right? To get the call to Taj uh, on that. Anything else on this, Kristen? No, not on this one. All right, let's go to number four. This one is a power uh, situation. And as, as with all of them, um, these are in-person situations and we can talk about how we would handle this one um, on the phone. So just to read it very quickly, we have a first, uh, we have a, a, an immigrant from a foreign country who doesn't speak English and who is relatively uh, small in stature and is not familiar with how the court system works. He's filed a claim against a local realty company for its failure to return uh, $2,250 he had put down um, on an apartment. Uh, and so I, we don't mean to say that apartments are just bullies and bad guys and things along those lines. Uh, they just happen to be the an easy forum for, um, for scenarios. The defendant is represented by the property manager, who is a large and burly person, by an assistant property manager and a company lawyer who is very loud and aggressive. Um, they've made many statements trying to intimidate the plaintiff. So how would you be comfortable? How comfortable would you be arranging the seating so that um, you would sit next to um, a plaintiff in a joint session? And I think it's easiest if the three of us discuss. Um, and so, I mean, I certainly have some thoughts on this, but I don't want to just throw them out there. So Kristen, why don't you lead us off? Um, personally mediating, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that because it's physically demonstrating um, just from body language wise that you're on one person's side rather than the other. Um, I typically, um, I know that in the courts, you don't always have options for your tables. I like to have a round table, then people aren't actually opposed to each other. You're all just sitting around a circle, but wouldn't even want to shift my chair towards one party or the other, particularly to stay there. If it was one thing to kind of shift to have a conversation, that would be one thing, but to stay on that side of the table, I would not feel comfortable doing so. I agree with that. Susan, what about you? I like the idea of the uh, the round table. Uh, uh, and I think sitting back, sitting next to a party uh, to the plaintiff probably is not a, uh, a bad idea. Having the parties, the ones that the decision makers next to you, I think uh, can be a good way to go rather than having the representatives uh, so that there is, at least they can talk to each other or maybe be across from each other. You have a party who's unrepresented, so that may give him a little bit more comfort. Um, I was going on to number B, to reduce uh, ganging up, insist that the assistant property manager leave the room and wait outside. Wow. Um, what do you say? I, the perception that of the ganging up, I have actually seen that. I think it's going to be tough to have one, to have somebody leave the room unless you have a very, very good reason for that. 
Um, and that is to balance the powers, maybe to have the other party, as I said before, closer to you so it doesn't seem so much. Um, I guess you could ask them, but I would want to know what his role is. And I think at the beginning of a mediation, if you haven't done it before, as a mediator to figure out who would be most appropriate to have at the table. And if there is a role, um, then I think they stay there. Sorry, I, I think there is a reason. I mean, you're not gonna leave the, tell the attorney to get out because one party has an attorney and the other one doesn't. No, the only reason you would ask somebody to leave is if you're in a really, really cramped room, right? Uh -huh. uh, okay. Or something along those lines, or if this person was doing misbehaving in some way, but you really do have to have a good reason. I, I completely agree with you uh, on this, but the ganging up would be a little bit different, I think, um, depending on what people are saying. Because certainly back when we were doing these in person, there were organizations that would have a couple people come. Um, and in oh, fact, yeah. right, right. And so like, you know, when people say there, I brought my witness, that's a little bit different. Um, I right. think because these are all officers, all people who could represent this organization and we're really not, we don't need witnesses and those sorts of things in mediation. Okay. Letter C, um, rule all threatening statements by the defendants out of bounds. So my first thought is what about threatening statements from the plaintiff? those out of bounds too, right? We got to be fair here. Um, and then there's always a question of what somebody thinks is threatening. Um, it's very um, sort of self-determinative on what that might be. So saying, you know, we're not giving your money back, that can be threatening. Even when people aren't saying it in a loud way, with a smiling face, they'll say it all kinds of different ways. That can just be perceived yeah. as threatening. And I'm not saying that that's the right perception or the wrong perception. If you're going to rule out threatening statements, I mean, are they sitting there cracking their knuckles and say, wait till we get you outside? Hey, then we have an exception to our mediation confidentiality statute. In fact, um, back in these days, there were times where uh, we would ask, uh, Susan, I know you've done this, and I'm sure that many people on this call have done this, where people have asked to have the um, court security walk them to their car. Oh, yeah. Um, right. And so mm -hmm. we've certainly facilitated that uh, in the past. Um, Kristen, you want to add something? Um, in terms of C specifically, I think it's just setting ground rules from the beginning. I agree not towards one person or the other, but if they do want to set up some ground rules, establishing those from the beginning, I think that it can also apply to B, even just asking, you know, um, who it's most appropriate to have in the room instead of just starting the mediation with whoever is there, just to make sure that um, they may even establish like, well, actually we don't need all of these people here. You never know. So it gives you an opportunity to take some variables out that you may not actually need in the mediation itself. But I agree, everyone's going to think it's kind of like the word fair. Everyone thinks that fair is different and their version of what is going to be a fair agreement is different. So it's hard to just say you can't, there's no threatening because that could be perceived in many different ways, but allowing them to establish the ground rules, then they're taking control of their process. And usually we use positive language. We're going to treat people with respect and those sorts of things. Again, another weasel word, 
but um, it's, it's an easier word to listen and to and probably understand, I think. Um, all right, so letter D. Susan, what do you think about this one? Call timeouts more yeah. often, give the plaintiff extra time to think through the situation and decide. Right, so D and even E to me, uh, when I read about timeouts, I'm thinking timeouts could be a break. I mean, timeouts could be taking time for everybody or um, like E talks about a caucus. I think one way to balance power imbalances is to perhaps caucus. And I know that many people do it. There are some people on this call that don't believe in caucusing. And again, the, this scenario is this more for in-person, that's what it seems like, or maybe even on the phone though, people can bully on the phone and can make uh, threatening statements. But I would say um, caucus might be one way to balance this out. So I call out more timeouts and it also lets the tenant or, you know, maybe um, uh, de-stress. We've talked about the brain and if people feel that they're being threatened, they're in that fight or flight uh, part of their brain. So you want to kind of calm people down so they can get to a more rational time. You know, the count to 10. Yeah, yeah Ken. Me? Yeah, well, I see that you unmuted yourself. I thought you were going to add something to yeah, um I've had a couple situations. One where an attorney tried to roll over a pro per, uh, failure to pay the physician his salary. Um, and it got so bad, I asked the attorney to come outside in the hall and said, you know that you're here under the auspice of good faith effort. You have not demonstrated that. I have an alternative, and that's to write judge's notes on this, to let the judge know that you did not honor your commitment to negotiate uh, in good faith. And I then showed him a copy of a text message sent by his clients, because he refused to call the physician a physician. And I said, so your your clients uh, didn't do their due diligence before they hired them by checking with the uh, Maricopa uh, Medical Board? And he said, I don't know about it. He's a physician. He's also Palestinian-American. And here's a text your client sent him, which was a racial and ethnic slur. And he shut up after that. And the doctor got his 6000 so, I mean, there were multiple ways to handle when pro pers are trying to get rolled over by an attorney. Right. So it's interesting. We don't have reporting requirements when it comes to, um, like, how people behave in mediation and those sorts of things. And so, it's, you know, it's a really good question about whether we can do that under the Arizona Mediation Confidentiality Statute, um, or whether that's proper. Um, and the reason I say that is not that, you know, people aren't damaged in that kind of way. It's just I'm a rule-loving fun hater, and um, you know, I want the I want the I want us to really understand this statute and use it the right way. Um, 
And so, but that I want to put that question out there. Has do other people um, give reports to the judges or the judges' staff? Is that are we at? Has anybody been asked to do that? Am I the I only counting, one? That, I count to five Mississippi's, by the way. So one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. I. I, I did have a, a, a lawyer that had similar, and I did ask to caucus, and I caucus with him first, and was actually quite, and I just said, I don't know, I, I told him, you, you really look like you're bullying this person, and he actually was very apologetic, and he himself was not realizing how bad it was. When he came back in the room, he was actually acting in a much more, you know, respectful way, and we ended up negotiating, but... uh. But you know, I guess as a mediator, recent time, I was found out later that that lawyer was supposedly feared by the clerk. So I guess you know, as a mediator, we have to understand also that we do have the control of the room. At least we may not have the control of the outcome, but we can control how people are gonna behave on that room. And and I think sometimes just holding a mirror to people is enough without even have to threat. You know, I'm gonna you know say anything, but you know, I don't know if you realize that but you're really bullying this person. And he, the guy was actually quite apologetic. All right. And is that Deborah Gama Lima? Is that the voice I hear? Yes, yes, it is. Sorry. Yes, Hi, <laughs> right, great to hear you. Uh, thanks for being a part of this. Um, anybody else uh, have mm -hmm. ideas? Susan, do you want to say something? No, I think... Uh... It, it's been mentioned before. I think those are good. Um, I think Ken brings up a good point. It may be uh, situational, you know. Right. Uh, so there was um, there was one situation where we got a case uh, in the clinic um, where the judge wanted a report afterwards, and I was going to bring it to students and say, "What do we do when we have this?" Um, and I mean, that's what the mediation outcome notice is for, right? It gives the report and the court knows what it needs to do going forward, which is uh, completely legitimate under the uh, under both the ethics standards uh, and the confidentiality rules. Um, but then that one went away. So we didn't have a problem um, to, to have a conversation. Uh, but has anybody done well, what Ken has done? Basically said, you know, you've got a good faith standard here and you know, I can let people know that you're not doing that. Well, yeah, Art, one thing, I've actually taken it a step further. Recently, I had a mediation where this attorney dressed like an aging uh, Kenny Rogers came in with his client who looked like a ZZ Top reject on a $1,200 credit card a case. Um, he was there for one reason, that's to get the edge on the other end of, because the other person, the other, the plaintiff would be telephonic. So he thought he would have an edge. And I said, your order says that this is uh, telephonic. And he says, well, if I would have, would have known that, I wouldn't have driven, driven all the way over from Glendale. And I said, it's on your mediation notice. And he says, who are you? You're just nothing but a mediator. You don't talk to me like that. I said, really? Got up, walked him over to the MCSO deputies, tell them he has no more business in this courthouse, turned around, walked away, wrote up the notes for judge, 
and submitted it with my mediation outcome notice of defendant failed to appear. Wow. Well, that that one, I, first of all, it reminds me a little bit uh, of a situation we had. But uh, so I think the point is, who's in control of the room? It's your room, right? You're the one who gets to make sure that people are following the rules and those sorts of things. But it also um, seems like this person was trying to challenge your authority in some kind of a way. And that was an understatement. Okay, and maybe they were, let's say that they're really tall and burly too. Let's put that in there, like in this uh, Yes, they were, and okay. I'm a little person. All right, um, so am I. <laughs> so <laughs> what do we do in these situations where we have somebody who is basically trying to intimidate us, right? Mm -hmm. And I, in fact, I've had people do these kinds of things to me as well, um, maybe not so much in that way, but, you know, kind of like, I know this stuff, you don't know this stuff, who are you? And um, <clears throat> then I just start, basically I start telling them a little bit about um, my experience in the justice court and how long I've been doing it. Granted, it's easy when you've been doing it as long as you have, Ken, or as I have, or as Susan has, um, Deborah as well, um, but some of us aren't, you know, aren't in that kind of a situation. The first thing that I would say is do not, do not as much as you can, let these people intimidate you. Um, this is a time where I wouldn't say it's like you're matching them to get them to back down, but basically what they're trying to get you to do is to cower and um, bully you and please stand your ground, um, number one. Number two, if there is a threat, then absolutely do report it. Um, report it to the, uh, that's what the sheriff's, the deputies are there for and those sorts of things as well. And you can let them know that you're um, going to do that. And if you don't feel safe, you should leave the room immediately. There's no question about that. Um, some of you will remember Rick Pate um, and Rick was probably 5'1", um, really short guy. Uh, and he had a case where there was almost a fight in his mediation room. And what he did is he slammed his hands down on the table and stood up and said, we're not going to, and he yelled, we're not going to have any more of that. And everybody <laughs> calmed down and started to behave the way that they're going to do it. Um, the one that I had was a situation where um, we had people who clearly hated each other and one person who was unbelievably obnoxious. Mediation went nowhere really fast. And um, we, the mediation was over and in the hallway, they almost came to blows. And uh, I mean, it was, and one person was really big and one person was really small. And, but they were both ready to like, yeah, you wanna do it, T do it right here. If you're gonna hit me, just hit me right here, kind of stuff. And uh, I had my student run and get the, get the sheriff's deputies uh, at the front and, um, by the time that they, I was like, you need to go, go get the sheriff's deputy right now. Uh, but this again, one time, just one time for me. Um, and the sheriff deputies came back, but by the time they came back, uh, the more hostile person stomped off um, and extricated himself from the situation. Long story short is these things can happen. Number one, make sure of your safety. Number two, if there are threats, 
do not be afraid to report them. Number three, make sure that the individuals know that you're the person who's in charge and you're the one who runs it. Um, and it's not up for them to decide. And if they have problems, then they can they then the mediation can be over. It's their choice. And I think that's the way to do it. Is as frame it as their choice. These are the rules. Your choice, right? Susan, I see you uh, have an open yes. Mic. No, I think a process outcome. I do think that as mediators, um, if you look at these standards, we want to make it safe for everybody. So if circumstances, uh, the reason I got on is I wanted to tell, especially some of the new mediators, these are not, these are one-off. May I say that? I mean, these are not your routine situations. So I just wanted to say that I think all of us, just because we've been doing it for so long, have encountered um, unusual circumstances, but certainly don't think that your next mediation with litigants in a room is going to end up being a bar fight, <laughs> uh, because I don't think that's going to happen. I think if people take advantage of the system, it is okay to report that to these judges. The judges do want to hear from you. If you want to introduce yourselves to them, let them know that you're a mediator. And if you're concerned about anything that happens without naming names and cases and giving confidential information, um, in addition to the clerks, I think the judges um, is also a good resource. So, okay. And Kristen, I see that your microphone is open. Oh, I was just going to, I was going to say very something very similar to Susan. Um, I think it's very rare and far between that it happens, but just as a mediator being confident in what you do, um, as someone who acknowledges still young, but started mediating very young, and also as a woman, I had attorneys who would call me out in mediation. I've had, you know, participants call me out in mediation because they don't see you as an authority, but it's just being confident in who you are as a mediator and what your role is. And if they decide not to reach an agreement in mediation because they would rather fight or they would rather be rude to you as the mediator, then they're going to have to go to a judge. So there are other options. We're not the last line of defense for them finding an agreement. Right. And uh, good points, all of those. Um, and to be clear, what we're talking about here um, on this scenario uh, are both section six of the uh, model standards, which deals with the quality of process and safety issues for all participants, and standard two dealing with impartiality, as particularly here in scenario four as it's written, very much an impartiality um, kind of situation. So we have about five minutes left uh, of our program uh, today. I thought that maybe um, we can either, uh, let's see, let's take a look at number five real quick. But maybe before we get into that, does anybody have any questions for us on the panel? Um, anything, you know, we were gonna do mediators roundtable um, and we had to kind of cut that off uh, a little bit short. Is there any, any questions uh, as we go into our last five minutes here? Because if there are none, we'll go into scenario five. There is Judge Williams' pending question about um, is it a better practice for a court to schedule everything for mediation or pick and choose certain cases for mediation? Oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, does anybody want to take a swing at that one? 
Yeah, I'll just read my re or what I responded to Judge Williams about. There's a court in the Northeast Court that schedules, rather than mediation, a pretrial conference, but only if they're, both sides are represented by an attorney. If there is no, uh, if that is unsuccessful, it goes straight to trial. There's no mediation. So if a pro per is involved, it'll always go to mediation. If it's just two attorneys, they go sit at pretrial. Makes sense. Kristen? I mean, at the Lodestar Center, we believe that everything should be able to be handled through ADR and that if we teach those ADR skills, that that can be the first line of defense. That's really what we, we teach and we train is training to handle things through conflict resolution processes pre going to trial. So I've always been an advocate for everything goes to mediation first. Um, but I think there's definitely circumstances where obviously we've talked about agreements can't be reached in mediation or potentially cases aren't appropriate for mediation. Um, to give some context, I mediated in the I mediate privately here, but I mediated in the court system in Michigan and we sent all cases were sent to mediation first, but there were restrictions. So, for example, um, cases with domestic violence or any potential orders of protection could not go to mediation. And there were some other exceptions as well. So that's kind of my background in terms of my perspective. I think everything could go to mediation first and then see what happens from there. Susan. Yeah, uh, similar. I mediated in California for many years and cases went to mediation with the exception of uh, family and with the exception of, oh, civil rights cases, some of those would not, um, it, it, there were some exceptions for those that would not uh, be appropriate for mediation, but otherwise most of them did. My question that we didn't get to in the round table, but I was wondering about um, is the debt collection. Art, uh, Kristen and I had talked about talking to you about have you had problems with debt collection because that was one area where mediators have said, wow, should these cases really go to mediation or not? And because of just the inherent um, power imbalance between um, the debtor and the debt collection agencies. But I think this might be a good time to just raise that point. I have to say, having now raised the question, that working with the students and even on myself, I have been, we have been very successful in mediating debt collection cases. And almost, I think we've become authorities on it, Art. Uh, however, I, I still think the question is a valid one to consider. Um, let me get to Judge Williams' question, and then uh, Judge Williams, if you want to respond in any kind of way, um, we'll give you the floor. Uh, I think the difficult part is we see a lot of posturing where people will say it's a waste of my time. And what we find out is we don't know who's true and who's, who's being truthful, or maybe they're being truthful, but then they're able to work it out anyway. Um, so it's really hard to decide, to determine in many cases, um, what's going to be worth the people's time and what's not. It's a very good uh, 
you know, nobody wants to waste anybody's time. And that makes a, a lot of sense. And most of the time, most of the time, when it comes to attorney's fees, well, maybe this is my sort of personal opinion on attorney's fees, but um, a lot of people say they're going to get their attorney's fees when I know that you, Judge Williams, are not going to think that those attorney's fees are legitimate. Um, and I think that attorneys just use attorney's fees as a way to intimidate uh, unrepresented claimants more than anything else. Because um, I know that there's a lot of room, um, unless it's their business practice, to um, collect them all the time. But then again, they have to go through the through the hoops, and they have to be reasonable based on what uh, the work the individual is doing. And so, anyway, I get to your point about not wasting people's time. My point is simply, it's hard to know when people are being truthful or when it, when we would really be wasting their time or not. So, floor to you, Judge Williams. No, that, that's very, very true. I, if, if, if one side is dug in at zero and the other side is dug in at 3,500, then maybe that's not a great candidate for mediation. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's something that can be mediated as, as well. Um, on debt collection cases, the, the defendant does have sort of a king's X amount at some point they'll just say okay fine i'll file bankruptcy and you get zero um so there's there's always that on on the debt collection cases so you you've got those issues as well um i i like mediation i, I try to sell it at the pre-trial conference I, I say that you don't have to worry about the rules of evidence you don't have to worry if your witness is going to show up and i say my, my canned speech says it's it's not like baseball arbitration that's not binding. If for some reason it doesn't work, uh, you can still go to a trial. So I, I like mediation, not just because it's one less case I have to deal with if it, if it resolves, but um, it produces a result that maybe both sides don't like, but both sides can live with. Yeah. And so I, I think mediation is very, very valuable. I've just been a little hesitant to order every case to mediation or um, use mediation as, as a default because, and I, I don't know, sometimes the first time people have talked to each other is the pre-trial conference. So I'm not getting maybe an honest uh, assessment of, of their of the respective positions, but um, that could certainly set more cases for mediation, especially if we're going to do them remotely. Getting people to drive just a prize is a separate issue. So, if we're going to do all the mediations remotely, then then uh, that's a, perhaps a win-win for for everyone. There was a, a well, you'll figure out who who he is if I give the location of his former court, but at White Tank, um, and he was convinced that if you could just get two people in a room, then you know, the, the case would resolve itself. And uh, the collection attorneys complained incessantly about having to drive out to the old White Tank Justice Court location, which I joked was halfway to Disneyland, but because it kind of was halfway to Disneyland. Uh, but I, I like mediation if, if, the, if the prevailing wisdom is Almost everything can be mediated, 
then I'll I'll set more things for mediation. Well, hey, we're glad to hear that. We're always happy to see more mediations. And one last thing, Charles, I just want to highlight one thing that Judge Williams said is can live with. We are looking for the can live with, can live with solution. Win-win, out the window. Can live with, can live with. All right, Charles, back to you. Well, in, in the mediator roundtable topic that, that I wanted to address was how do you handle confidentiality? Because I'm not sure if that was addressing our new virtual world. Because the thing that concerns me is, okay, you're doing it telephonic or you're even doing it on GoToMeeting. How do you know I'm not recording this mediation session? Yeah. Um, maybe we should schedule this for three hours because there's three scenarios that we didn't get to. And and there uh, are some you know wonderful discussions uh, maybe we can schedule another roundtable. Uh, I, I know the schedules are hard, but uh, we, we've left a lot of stuff on the table. But um, this this has been a tremendous session. Um, thank you so much. Uh, do we have any last quick questions or comments? All right. Well, thank you, everybody. The the CoJet certificate is at the end of the packet. Again, this should be posted as a podcast and as a webinar. Uh, Art, do you have an, an answer to my question? How do you stop somebody if you're doing it virtually from recording? Um, I don't have a quick answer, but I thought I heard somebody try to say something just a moment ago after you said uh, somebody. I just put on my microphone to say that I just sent out an email to everyone with a blank copy of the COA and the materials again, just for your convenience. Thank All you right, for that. So have, a, have a great day. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks so much, Charles. And talk with us about other times. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye, everybody. Be well. Thank you.